Good morning and welcome back to Rising Fridays. I'm here in the studio, COVID-free. Thank you for holding it down for a couple of weeks while I'm here. I had to sit on the side of the table. It was, was it over here? disorienting. Yeah. yeah. I know. The, the, the camera and the teleprompter on this side is about half a mile away. Yeah, it's too much. It's too much. Uh, but you're feeling good? You're, you're feeling ready great. for action, right? I think the, like, the not drinking, the no caffeine, and the sleeping, I, I feel better. You handled like, COVID without alcohol? Uh, mostly. Okay. Yeah. I thought that uh, was... The, I mean, you should not drink while you have COVID. It's, well, like, it's not good for your immune system. I'm not a doctor, but... <laughs> I'm not a doctor either, but uh, I, I wasn't perfect, but I got through it. Okay. Well, congratulations on your recovery, Ryan. <laughs> my, my wife was like pounding high noons when we tested positive. I'm, like, I'm, I'm not sure that's the move. Like, that's not what the CDC recommends right now. Well, first of all, it, they're full of citrus. That's true. Vitamin, <laughs> vitamin D, C. Vitamin C. You want the vitamin D and vitamin right. C, yeah. Uh, so there's a big week coming up, and one of the fun things about Rising Fridays is that we get to sort of preview what's happening next week as we go into the weekend um, to get that lens for mm -hmm. as soon as the curtain rises on Monday, there are primaries Tuesday. These are contentious races. These are um, fun that, ones. They're, they're fun races, and in, in the sort of spirit of primary season, there's some lessons, I think, to be learned about the evolution of both the Republican and Democratic Party in 2022 from some of these races. We can start with what's happening in Pennsylvania. That, to me, is one of the most fascinating races, period, because you have a candidate like Dr. Oz, then you have the more traditional Republican candidate in McCormick, and now Kathy Barnett is surging to the point where this race is neck and neck because she had a good debate performance and because people are totally dissatisfied with the other two choices. People don't love Dr. Oz, although he does, in polling, have a decent chunk of the vote. He's endorsed by Donald Trump. Then you have uh, McCormick, who's sort of a more, um, you know, he's sort of a more Republican, typical Republican. He's something yeah. like that, right. And, uh, you know, those Dina are... Powell's husband, right? Yeah, so th yeah. these are the two front runners. And then Kathy Barnett comes out of nowhere, has a great debate performance, and it started to get really ugly. Um, it started to get really ugly because there are people in the Trump camp who are extremely dissatisfied with his decision to back Dr. Oz. And so their resources, uh, in some cases, have gone to Kathy Barnett and McCormick. But as Barnett has risen, she's an interesting candidate, an interesting person. Um, people by the likes of, like the likes of Sean Hannity have come out swinging. We actually have a, a good clip from incredible. Hannity. Yeah, take a look. Primary season, she tweeted, there's a lot of tweets, quote, did you see last the last presidential debate? Trump was horrid. Followed up that with Trump is just as liberal as Democratic leaders we currently have in office. Morality matters and Trump does not rank high in it. She also wrote Trump is good for beer, for beers and barbecue, not as a president. And claimed that Trump's moral character is questionable. And, and by the way, she even tweeted this about me. And there's me and says, oh, Glenn Beck, actually, Glenn Beck, why does Hannity support unprincipled Donald Trump? Uh, and it gets worse. More resurfaced tweets are even more disturbing. One from her Twitter account in 2016 reads, quote, don't we get it? Obama is a Muslim. And there are lots of these tweets. From another 2013, she says, please pray for my babies and me. We're about to board the plane to California. And there's a homosexual female and linking out to a Facebook post. 
Moments ago, one of our producers spoke to Kathy Barnett. She claims she cannot recall the context of the tweet about Obama or any of the other controversial quotes. And when we asked her about the tweet about boarding the plane, she said to our producer, quote, I would never say that. Those are not my words. I don't know if she's claiming that her Twitter account was hacked, but it's on her official Twitter account. So with only six days left in this campaign, there are serious, real, open questions about the surging Kathy Barnett campaign and where she truly stands on issues. Okay. There's a lot going on. So much. <laughs> so much to unpack, as they say from that. Ryan, what stands out to you from Hannity's uh, broadside uh, against Barnett? I mean, one, I mean, it's interesting that he feels like he just needs to unleash, unload everything that he's got on her. <laughs> but also, it, it leaves people like me scratching our heads. We're like, wait a minute. So Fox News used birtherism. You to, mean Hillary to, Clinton used Fox News to use Well, Hillary Clinton, yes. But, all, but 20, starting 2012, Trump. Like going back, like Donald Trump, the reason that they kept having him on Fox, this is before, oh, well, Mark Penn in 2008 doing that stuff. So Donald Trump constantly on Fox News doing the birtherism thing. I, maybe he's from Africa. He, he, he never probably necessarily said he's Muslim, but that was the whole implication of the entire birtherism thing. It definitely fueled a lot. Right, and so Fox News fuels the, this birtherism, which then fuels Trump, and now is utterly appalled that they're losing control of it. And so we're like several degrees of lost control down. So first, you have like Boehner and Cantor absolutely loving the energy of the Tea Party mm. and thinking that this is going to get them back in the majority. It does, but, but it also decapitates both of them. So they lose control of the Tea Party. Then you have the Tea Party losing control to the Trump movement. And for some reason, everybody that takes control under this process thinks that this is the end of the process, that now they are going to be the ones that are going to be able to manage this chaos that they've unleashed. And now, all of a sudden, Trump has endorsed Dr. Oz, and you've got somebody who's taking the birtherism and, the, and, the, and Obama's a Muslim and all this crazy stuff, which YouTube monitors, not true, none of it's true, <laughs> and taking it to its logical extreme and just saying it out loud. And to have Hannity be the one to, to be appalled at that, it's like, well, wait a minute. This, this is the energy that you unleashed. And what I love about this coming primary is I don't know what's going to happen. Like, she, yeah. like I, she could win. You know, right. maybe, maybe Oz and McCormick have uh, annihilated each other enough with enough money that people are like, you know what? This is, this is the next generation of Trumpism, whether Trump's with her or not. I don't know, what, what, what jumped out to you about it? It's so interesting that Trump endorsed Dr. Oz. I mean, it's, it's obvious on its face, it's obvious. But Dr. Oz is, is sort of problematic from a, like, if you are a, a hardcore Trump voter, Dr. Oz is not somebody that you want to hold your nose and have to vote for. Trump's argument is that Dr. Oz is who can win the general election. And that's what he said about Kathy Barnett. He said, you know, she, this is not somebody who can take this seat in no November, vote for Dr. Oz. But Dr. Oz, uh, first of all, <laughs> I saw this yesterday, um, was very supportive of Jesse Smollett. Like he has, because he's been a, a fixture in pop culture, he has all of these alliances with people that, alliances and just past interactions, pleasant interactions um, with people that, especially sort of Republican base voters, 
detest right now, um, in large part because they have, that's something that Trump tapped into. Um, and so Trump is, is using this line that Dr. Oz was who can win the general election, and Dr. Oz at the same time was a really early booster of um, gender assignment, not surgeries, but treatment, affirmation treatment for dysphoria. So you go back a long time, and this is something that's played in the primary. Um, that's part of the oppo that's sort of been flung mm-hmm. back and forth uh, in the race like to journalists and conservative media. That's been huge. So it's just, it's totally splintered in the way that even Vance and Mandel in Ohio didn't because Barnett was so strong on Oz on abortion. Um, in that debate, just came out swinging. Now the polling is neck and neck. And what could happen, and this is something to always remember with primaries, the polling is not always very good. And things happen quickly and can happen quickly before the race. So it could be possible that Oz has a 10-point lead and wins comfortably in a way that like Vance did after he got the Trump endorsement. Um, or this could be you know, less than one percentage point of a win for someone. We don't know. Yeah. And if she wins on Tuesday, this could be the first, and I mean this with all due respect, the first rising commenter. Uh, oh, who really? could win a primary. I mean, let's put up uh, her recent tweet that's uh, responding to criticism. She says, the fact is, when you call out the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, and the Federal Reserve, the establishment is not going to love you. That just means I'll be calling them out even louder. That feels like she's just plagiarizing from our viewership. Like, there is a base. Or from us. Or from <laughs> <laughs> right. There is a base for this type of thing. Let's talk about her, though, because so... Because there's like just days before the primary, yeah. like the vetting process of her is happening yep. in just a matter of hours. So what we know, she, we know she was like grew up in Alabama, mm-hmm. right? She says that she was raised on a pig farm without insulation or running water and like an, an outhouse. Uh, we know that she wrote a memoir, so we know that she lived in Virginia for a very long time, perhaps pretty until recently. Yep. We also know she ran against Madeline Dean, a Democratic uh, member of Congress in uh, sub, in suburban Philadelphia, lost by 30, which that's what you're going to do in 2018 against, uh, was, was it 2018 or 2020? People can look it up on Ballotpedia. So she's been in Pennsylvania for a couple years, at least. She recently said that the first time she voted uh, in Pennsylvania, or, or the, the one she really remembers was voting in the primary for Donald Trump in 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, McCormick's uh, guy posted on Twitter this morning, uh, according to her memoir, she didn't vote in 2016. Mm-hmm. So like, you just poke a little bit at the bio, and it yeah. starts to come apart. She, uh, she claims to have been in uh, the Army Reserves, but she's like misnamed it a bunch of different times and hasn't seemed very fluent with the, with the basic military lingo. And so we'll see. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. Like, but it's the kind of thing that we're going to find out probably after the primary. Uh, what, so is this a win for Trumpism and a loss for Trump if she wins? It's a good question. I mean, and you know this better than I do because you've been doing this uh, longer, and that is a dig uh, at your age. Yes. <laughs> but, no, but in all seriousness, like, you do know this better than I do. The primaries are so, they can be so localized, even when people try to nationalize them. Mm-hmm. So, like, Dr. Oz being a carpetbagger is actually part of this conversation, too. And McCormick, um, too, right? Right, like, yeah. This is, like, they're all facing those types of and accusations. Her, none of these are Pennsylvanians. Like, right. the top three candidates are not really Pennsylvanians. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and not, yeah. Yes. And so this is, it's hard to know 
how many lessons that you, we can draw from this. But I will say, no matter what, um, as someone who's sort of on the right in conservative media, it has been so ugly in terms of oppo, who's falling on what side, who is trying to undercut who really, really quickly. Um, and so it's it's hard to say because in some ways, Dr. Oz is representative of Trumpism, um, very sort of uh, progressive on LGBT issues, and then um, very, also, by the way, on China. That's another thing that's factored mm -hmm. into Dr. Oz. He's getting a lot of criticism for being too friendly uh, with China. And so you can, and then sort of switching. Um, right. And you can see how in, in certain cases, these things are representative and, and reflective. Um, and I think what will be most telling is when reporters are out there at the polls talking to voters, um, I, I'm going to be curious to say, to see more about why voters say they're supporting X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, and that I think will be particularly telling um, in terms of if it's Trumpism, Trump the man, if this is a very, if it was very localized, even though people tried to nationalize it. There's just so much going on. And we probably have to move on pretty soon, but just to run through a couple of the others, the, the, the Democratic primary in yeah. the Senate has become a sleeper. Mm -hmm. Like Fet John Fetterman recently polled over 50%, like just blowing away the competition. So unless it's just a, a huge polling miss, it looks like it's going to be Fetterman, which is, in, which is his own in, you know, interesting attempt by Democrats to kind of break, break their mold. The old school Democrats would have gone with Connor Lamb. Uh, he's just gotten no traction. So it'll be him against, likely be him against whoever the Republicans put up. There's a Pennsylvania House race uh, that is also fascinating. Summer Lee, who basically making a bid to join the squad, a mm. very you know, squad-esque member. She was a Democratic, she's a Democratic Socialist serving in the, in the state legislature. Uh, uh, very popular in the area. Was up by 30 points just, say, a month ago. Uh, APAC and DMFI have come in with uh, millions and millions of dollars mm -hmm. and have pummeled her relentlessly. And not, not over Israel, mostly just over the same thing they hit Nina Turner over, which is that she's not a good enough Democrat. Mm -hmm. The irony being, of course, APAC has funded and, and is supporting more than 100 uh, Republicans who voted to not uh, certify the election. And so, Listen, Republicans is, are the best Democrats. <laughs> there you go. So it's like, okay, yes, she's not a perfect, like, down-the-middle, mainline Democrat. That's what a lot of people like about her. But really, a your APAC is going to be the one <laughs> who's <laughs> telling us who the good Democrats are. But they may have spent enough money that they will have pushed this kind of anti-union lawyer, kind of corporate lawyer, uh, over over the finish line, Steve Irwin. We'll, Steve Irwin. It's going to be that, that's going to be very close. Uh, in Oregon, there are primaries as well. Uh, there's that ten million dollar crypto race mm -hmm. that we talked about earlier. And Kurt Schrader, uh, who played an influential role in, in trying to kill Build Back Better, is facing a, pri a progressive primary challenge. He has the endorsement of Biden, uh, but all the other kind of progressive support, both in state and nationally, is behind this Jamie McLeod Skinner. Uh, who very well may knock Schrader out. Uh, and so we'll see. One final race to watch, I would say, is as things develop over the next couple of weeks before the primary in Georgia um, between Brian Kemp and David Perdue. It's a fun one. Uh, yeah, this is a, this is a big one. Uh, Trump has backed 
uh, Purdue, and then Mike Pence has actually elevated his involvement on the Kemp side, which is really interesting, really, really interesting. President, former vice president on different sides of a huge race that has very big implications um, or very big implications in terms of like how the message of 2020 was interpreted And that's by in a couple of weeks, right? And Kemp, yes, and Kemp is looking pretty good in that race because yes. Republicans like him, right? I mean, well, the only thing that he didn't do is steal the election for Trump. So this is where we should wrap because that's a, it, it is a good point about as you're interpreting and, and will be interpreting primary results um, over the course of the cycle, but particularly in the next few weeks, these are so localized in ways yeah. that national media often completely distorts and tries to make them fit into these clean, easy narratives about Democrats or Republicans or the establishment or the anti-establishment, crazy people, non-crazy people, and it just doesn't always fit. Sometimes, sure, but it just doesn't always fit into those really neat boxes that they try to. So on that note, um, we will have more Rising for you after this, and thank you so much for joining us again on Rising Fridays. Emily, what's on your radar? Well, just a few days before the Dobbs leak upended American politics, Forbes dropped a detailed investigation into TikTok live streams, pouring over hard evidence. And here's what reporter Alexandra Levine wrote. A Forbes review of hundreds of recent TikTok live streams reveals how viewers regularly use the comments to urge young girls to perform acts that appear to toe the line of child pornography, rewarding those who oblige with TikTok gifts, which can be redeemed for money or off-platform payments to Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App accounts that users list in their TikTok profiles. All right, so let's just quickly pause right there. The barrier to entry into this very seedy environment is remarkably low. You just have to have a TikTok and post a live stream. You're supposed to be over 16 to host one and over 18 to send gifts, but obviously kids are smart. So again, to be exposed to wildly inappropriate sexualization, even in just one creepy comment, all teens have to do is download TikTok and then go live. A 17-year-old girl, South Carolina girl named Madison, told Forbes that some of her underage friends were raking in $200 a week from their TikTok live streams. Even if you're too young to make money, Madison said, that doesn't prevent, quote, older men trying to sexualize girls. Here's more from Levine's interview with her. Quote, can we see brown shirt topless? One commenter asked as Madison and her friend in a brown shirt answered questions on a TikTok live last month. Madison was also asked to show a bit, please, and stand and over Cam. Even after her lives end, some viewers have followed up with Madison through Instagram and offered to pay her to speak with them. Another girl told Levine, you can't even go live on TikTok without getting weirdos trying to get pictures out of women. In just one TikTok live last month, wrote Levine, Brown and her roommate bought more, brought more than 500 strangers into their house virtually, were, were asked to meet up with men in person to golf, old guys her dad's age, and were offered as much as $50 for photos of their feet. Brown said she wouldn't take cash for photos of her feet, but others certainly would. $20 is $20, she said. That's coffee a few times a week. Now, Brown is 18, to be clear, but her experience on TikTok seems to be characteristic of what girls find when they jump on these live streams, and of course it is. Of course that's what's happening. The duality of social media reflects the duality of human beings, and it always has. There's a lot of good and a lot of bad. Naturally, the sexual deviancies and appetites of users will 
shape the contours of the content. But TikTok isn't a paper manufacturer, a web server, or a phone company. It uses a sophisticated algorithm to curate content and addict users into spending as much time as possible glued to the screen. Ethical tech should strive to make a profit while having a net positive impact and minimizing humans' worst natural instincts. If you're, say, the Chinese government and members of your ruling party are installed all over the staff and control of the most popular app in America where the children of your adversary are spending hours of their formative years, how might you approach TikTok? By the way, that's not hypothetical. That is actually what's happening with TikTok. China knows how powerful TikTok is as a cultural weapon because ByteDance runs it. It's parallel app very differently there with government propaganda, strict time limits, and mandatory pauses. Now, I'm not saying that's what should happen in America, but to stay in parents' good graces, TikTok has some limits here. They're just enormously difficult to enforce. And the damage is already done once a sexual comment aimed at a young girl posted. Again, this has happened throughout human history. When I, was in, when I was in high school, I remember at one point the moral panic was over chat roulette, uh, except it was more of a joke at the time than a moral panic. This is when social media was relatively new. YouTube itself was relatively new. And in retrospect, there really was nothing funny about teenagers clicking through live feeds of strangers' genitalia, let alone interacting with them. But of course, Older people have always found ways to exploit younger, younger people sexually, and as technology has evolved, they've naturally used it to facilitate that abuse. Yet TikTok is on another scale entirely. The app is bad for many reasons, from national security to wrecking our attention spans, but this one is especially clear cut. This is happening every single day under our noses, and we will never be able to repair the damage done to each kid who encounters exploitive content just today from the moment I finish this sentence until the moment my head hits the pillow. It may seem normal in the age of the internet, and I think it actually does to those of us who grew up with instant messaging apps and later social media, which co connects people anonymously in many cases for, of all ages without any community accountability together at the swipe of a thumb. We're not meant to live like this. So where are all the voices who clamor for corporate boycotts of objectionable content when that content is merely politically intolerable to them? We can all agree TikTok is at least facilitating this abuse of its live stream technology. So why is nobody calling for an advertiser boycott? TikTok was slower out of the gate in ad revenue, but now most of its revenue comes from ads. And you can see just this spring, a report found that TikTok's ad revenue is expected to triple this year, triple, quote, skyrocketing interest in the platform among consumers and brands alike is propelling TikTok's ad revenue, which is expected to overshadow Twitter and Snapchat's ad revenue combined. Marketing Dive wrote, analyzing a new report from Insider Intelligence. So there's your answer. TikTok is lucrative. Corporate America will ignore the glaring ethical lapses and cash out until consumers and regulators make it harmful for them to do otherwise. So as consumers, let's get right on that. Ryan, this drives me crazy because every time Tucker Carlson says something that people on the far left deem objectionable, they call for corporations to exert more power over <laughs> political discourse, right? Corporate boycott of Tucker, pull out of Laura's show, um, and as your corporation, you are you know, exerting your idea of what the political discourse should like with, look like with your corporate power and your money. 
nobody talks about a corporate boycott of TikTok. There's absolutely nothing. Do you think it's because a lot of people, there's an age gap, they don't understand exactly how bad TikTok is, they don't know how easy it is for older men to just dive into these live streams that young girls are doing with their friends, um, or do you think it is because, honestly, it's not worth it for them to even consider if they have such a lucrative sort of ad placement on well, TikTok? They probably also don't really understand what TikTok's revenue model is. Sure, yeah. And also don't have a specific target. So it's like you want Tucker Carlson's show or Bill O'Reilly being a good example. They, they targeted Bill O'Reilly. You wanted Bill O'Reilly off the air. You talk to Dove and all the other companies that you see advertising or whoever was advertising at the time on, on the O'Reilly factor. You pressure them to take the ads down. Like you, There's an ABC mm -hmm. that people can understand. Whereas when it comes to TikTok, it's like, well, how do you how do you kind of demonetize like that creep who was asking for that thing? It's like the problem is the whole thing yeah. rather than any particular show that you, that you can find a particular advertiser supporting. So I actually think that they, we should just ban TikTok in the 100%. United States because I believe that in a democracy that we should be able to you know, have some democratic say over the way that we structure our society. And we can't with TikTok. Yeah. It's not ours. It's basically a foreign app. I, mean, I know there's been some effort to get like U.S. investors and it's BS. involved the, in it or the whatever. The way that they've tried yeah. to restructure has been smoke and mirrors. They're still yeah. based in Beijing and owned by ByteDance. And so it's no, that by, that's, you know, banning it is by no means a solution to the various overlapping social media crises that we have. No. But it, it's a start. Like, if you don't do that, like, you're just, you're just handing to this, to this company the, the weapons to just constantly so so as much uh, misery and emotional and political turmoil as, as they see fit and they don't even do they like they want to make a profit but that might not be their ultimate objective. Yeah, if you look at the top yearly trends on TikTok, it's amazing um, how much time kids are spending on this app. Like, not to sound you know, like Ben Shapiro, but uh, the the WAP video was one of the top tens, uh, top trends on TikTok, which is like fine if you're 20 years old. But there are a lot of kids who are not 20 years old who are scrolling through it, um, and that's again the least of the concerns. I think the bigger concerns are about the, like really, really um, sexual situations that you can get into on live streams where again like people from you know that are our age older know like what that was like on the instant message boards in the 90s and in the 2000s um, but on TikTok again like this is where kids are spending an insane amount of time they're very young it's totally unsupervised you don't have to sit at the desktop computer and log on to the dial up with your parents right. walking around in the background um, so there's just so many problems with it I would say the ban on is on national security grounds is a pretty obvious uh, substantiation for how that would happen. But this is why, to me, it's so much deeper than even just TikTok, as you said. Like, banning TikTok, as consumers, I think people need to be take this much more seriously. And I'm not sure that older people who are now parents and use Facebook in some very normal ways, like, you know, playing games or connecting with people from high school, whatever it is, understand exactly how bad this has gotten um, for, you know, a 12-year-old who's spending a lot of unsupervised time on Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram. Um, the, the access and the ease at which it can access you without your control mm -hmm. of, of just seedy people with bad intentions who are shaping young hearts and minds like literally every single day with exploitive bad intentions. It is chilling. Yeah. Yeah, right. Just start over. Build it the way that we feel is appropriate uh, for 
democratic society rather than just having it foisted on us. It's so exploitive. Um, it's so exploitive, and they're making a ton of money off of it, too. So just another way we are being exploited by corporate America. <laughs> corporate China, too. Yes, <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, right, I am looking forward to what's on your radar next. The United Nations and the World Food Program are reporting that nearly 20 million people in Afghanistan are facing a serious crisis of hunger. It's a crisis primarily driven by the United States. To help unpack and explain this, we're fortunate to be joined now by Professor Shah Mehrabi. He's a, he's a professor of economics at Montgomery College and chair of the Central Bank of Afghanistan's Audit Committee and also a member of the board of the Central Bank of Afghanistan. Professor Mirabi, thank you so much for joining us. I'm pleased to join you this morning. And so there's been, there's been a lot of discussion in the media about this $7 billion in Afghan central bank reserves that the United States seized when the Taliban uh, took over Kabul. But there hasn't been much by way of explanation of why the United States was able to seize that money or who they seized it from. And so you are one of the few members of the Afghanistan uh, Central Bank, uh, which had the money seized from it. So can, can you just explain to viewers what is the Afghanistan Central Bank? How did it, how did it get, and how did it get created? Okay. Uh, thank you very much again for uh, inviting me. The Afghanistan Bank, which is the Central Bank of Afghanistan, was established as an independent institution uh, and, and that independent institution had the full autonomy uh, to carry out its goal and responsibilities without interference uh, and pressure from others. And this was in 2004, the DAB law, that is Afghanistan Bank, DAB law was established. And that DAB law, which still is in existence, uh, clearly spells out that the primary objective of the, of the central bank is to be able to track and manage money supply. And the whole purpose is to bring about stability in the prices, to make it easier for people to afford to buy basic necessities of life. And the basic objective of uh, that law also is to provide enough liquidity. Uh, now, people have very difficult time to get access to their deposits on the bank because the reserves have been uh, uh, seized or stolen by others who says that, or, or confiscated, or whatever word you want to use, uh, as, uh, by the United States. And that has crippled the financial institution uh, who are not able to be able to carry out their responsibility. And one of the main responsibilities is to bring state stability in the prices and also to, uh, to be able to eliminate volatility in exchange rate. And it's very critical here. I think it's, and a lot of people need to understand the fact that the objective uh, in this case of the, of the central bank is to bring price stability. And, and to be able to do that, uh, then uh, the central bank needs to engage in foreign exchange auctions. And how do you do a foreign exchange auction when you don't have access to their own reserve? Uh, and and that, you, that is United States uh, dollars in the form of foreign exchange reserve that are at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that were uh, that were uh, deposited by the central bank because the United States offered uh, safety and also high rate of return. Now, those exchange rate 
has got high effect on inflation rate in Afghanistan. Uh, in case, which is, is now that in case the domestic currency loses its value against United States dollars, then what happens to the prices? Prices of import goods rise. And that is what you see clearly going on now in the economy. We have double digit inflation, as well as we have double digit uh, uh, increase in exchange rate. As I had uh, clearly predicted back in September of 2021, we have the clear data now that shows that uh, in both of those areas. And I'll be happy to share that as well. So the counter argument is obviously devastating for the people of Afghanistan. The, the obvious counter argument um, that people in the states say is if you release the funds, it goes into the hands of the Taliban and funds nefarious activities um, on the part of the Taliban. What's your response to that very common argument um, that gets thrown around in, in this debate? Why is, um, you know, why is that wrong, basically? OK, this, this is the first point that needs to be brought up I think, uh, uh, and the public needs to know that these reserves are uh, reserves that belong to Afghan people. And Afghan people uh, established an independent entity, it's called Central Bank, uh, and they entrusted this institution based on the law, that law, that was the Central Bank law, vested the management and maintenance of these reserves uh, on this uh, Central Bank of Afghanistan. Uh, and for the purpose of safeguarding the value of the international value of Afghani vis-a-vis -vis that of dollar in Europe. And also to be able to maintain confidence in Afghanistan money in, in exchange rate policy. Now, President uh, President uh, Biden obviously split those in two, and then I will come to that later on. But now the important point here that I brought up a minute ago is that you one has to understand that the central bank is independent entity, and, and it still follows the laws and the laws that were established during the prior regime. regime, And the, also the highest policy-making body of the central bank is the Supreme Council. That is the board, what it's called, because it's, the central bank is very similar in its structure to that of Federal Reserve Bank of, of the United States. It has governors, and the governors make the policies. There has not been any interference by Taliban whatsoever in that fear that I conduct as a chair of the audit committee and or in the policy making of that uh, of that particular entity so to argue that indeed the taliban if they all you have to do is look at evidence what has happened to the reserve that we that we left in the hands of taliban when uh, when taliban took over uh, on, on august 15 those reserves were managed very well and also there have been more reserve that have been accumulated in the past nine months they have been used for the purpose of auctioning off on a limited basis in order to bring price stability and, and eliminate volatility in exchange rate. So look at the evidence. And also what I had suggested to build that trust building mechanism, I had suggested back in September, allow a monitored access to, uh, to uh, on a limited basis of $150 million for, to be used exclusively for auctioning purposes. Right, that's, and if you yeah. see... He, uh, there's any misuse of that, then cut the funds. You right, know? That, that's, uh, what I, that, that's what I wanted to ask. That's what I wanted to ask you about because okay, so you could say the the, the central bank currently has assets. Uh, the Taliban yeah. has not interfered with the way that the central bank is dispersing the assets in, to to meet its mandate of of price control. But let's say that you know 
politicians in the United States are worried, well, what if we release a lot of this money and the Taliban changes its tune and starts <laughs> interfering? What, what mechanisms do you have as a central banker uh, to be able to you know, report back and to monitor? Uh, so, and then what could the United States do if it felt like its money was uh, being misused by the Taliban? Okay. The, the first, I, I want to make sure that we understand that this money is not United States money. Yes. I, 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 I mean, I, I, I agree with you on that, but the United, the people here in the United States feel like it is their money, like, okay. even though it's not. Uh, I, I, yeah. Afghans uh, have accumulated all this money yeah. uh, over the past 20 years, and they have deposited, the only thing is they deposited in the United States, and some of it in Europe, obviously, 2.1 billion is in Europe, and that will have to be also released uh, and they are not releasing it because of the fear of treasury in the United States. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is the best way of to give guarantee, what I have suggested is that limited monitor release of these reserves. Why not that come up with a trust-building mechanism between the current government and the United States? I had suggested $150 million per month. It could be less uh, to pay for import. And now a specific use of, the resor- of these reserves could be used for what I have said for auction purposes uh, in order to prop up the value of Afghani. The reason here is to stabilize prices, to help meet the needs of ordinary Afghans who cannot afford to buy bread, who cannot afford to buy, uh, pay for cooking oil, who cannot afford to go ahead and pay for fuel. So the whole idea is also that this can be independently verified, uh, verified by uh, by, uh, by auditing firm and can be terminated in the event of misuse. And I think this is a guarantee because, again, why I reiterate this point that these reserves belong to Afghan people. It is managed, controlled, and invested by the Central Bank of Afghanistan. Uh, in, you know, and the objective is to provide liquidity so that, that they, they can be readily available to pay for imports and to reduce volatility and so on, and to reduce the depreciation of Afghani, which which creates higher prices that makes it very difficult for poor people who are very desperate uh, to be able to get a piece of bread. And their long lines are formed at a bakery store, people begging to be able to have non-non, which is a basic staple, to be able to have at least a piece of that particular bread to be able to survive. So it's, in one way or another, a cruel punishment uh, in, uh, by others to be able to seize the funds that belong to the ordinary Afghans and to be managed, as Afghans have decided, through the central bank, uh, which is an independent entity. Yeah, and, and we've, we've covered this pretty heavily on, on this program, but I, my sense is that the American people, and, in, and it seems like also perhaps the American government, has basically no understanding, or they pretend that they have no understanding of what's going on here. So I just want to underline it one, one, one more time here. It, it is as if a foreign government seized all of the assets of the U.S. Federal Reserve. The U.S. Federal Reserve in the United States here is responsible for price stability. They, they're cons- federal Fed right now is concerned about inflation. And so they're using uh, their reserves and they're using their interest rate policy in order to try to tamp down inflation. If the Federal Reserve can no longer operate, then it then you just get kind of just a runaway crisis the way that you get in Afghanistan. And one reason it feels like the American government doesn't understand what's going on here or pretends not to understand is that it, it, the Biden administration is saying 
that it's going to take half of this money, it's going to steal half of it, the other half it's going to use, quote, to the benefit of the Afghan people. Now, that has been interpreted a couple of different ways. Some people thought that that, was going, that meant they would, it would be humanitarian aid. It would be funneled to, say, the World Food Program or the UN and would be used to kind of purchase food for people who are hungry and then give it, and, and then give it to those people. Uh, that is the opposite of what the... That, that, is, that is not what the central bank's role is. The central bank's role is to get the economy going, to get banks open, uh, to, to create a situation where people can actually you know, get paid for going to work and where people can depend on uh, you know, consistent prices o- you know, o- over time. And so what is, you, you, you meet with Treasury uh, occasionally. What is, what is your understanding of whether or not the White House understands this situation and is just acting in a reckless way or simply doesn't understanding it? Uh, wh- and what is, what, is take, what is your understanding of what is taking so long to get this money released? I think there, there, uh, there's a political reason uh, for why there's been no, that these reserves have not been uh, released expeditiously. And it's not only the USD, United States dollars, that, uh, that, uh, that exist in the form of reserve, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank, but also Afghani banknotes. Afghani banknotes also have not been released because uh, uh, that again, the United States initially did not uh, give a comfort letter to a Poland uh, printing company uh, to release Afghani banknotes. That still have not been released. While the Treasury has facilitated that, uh, that is a comfort letter, uh, then there's been logistic problem. One, and then also, since there's no corresponding bank, here, uh, the, the Central Bank of Afghanistan cannot go ahead and transfer money to any other entity outside Afghanistan to be able to meet uh, its debt or other obligation. So the Treasury definitely understand that. This is a political decision that was made by President uh, by President uh, Biden. Uh, and President Biden obviously decided that he is going to split uh, the funds into two, 3.5 billion to be used for what is called, quote unquote, for the benefits of Afghan people. Uh, and then the other 3.5 uh, to be set aside for September 11 plaintiff uh, to be litigated in the court. Now, uh, this policy, really, I've argued, it's, it's designed to decapitalize the central bank uh, and to dismantle it. It's, it's, it's very simple uh, overall. Uh, and I think I have argued also the whole policy of uh, allowing a plaintiff of uh, September 11, I strongly believe they can be compensated, but they could be compensated through other means rather than spending Afghanistan reserve. I think we spent now in the last two months $53 billion for uh, Ukraine purposes. There are ways that we could also facilitate this uh, or come up with an expenditure for the purpose of settling a 9-11 plaintiff. But I think to take away the $2.5 billion out of our $7 billion I, I, uh, allocation is, uh, as I would say, is totally unjustified. And there's no economic reasoning for how that split came into, into being, except the fact that it was a politically comfortable decision for President, uh, President Biden and the Treasury to go ahead and, uh, and, and come up with this particular arrangement. Great. Well, Dr. Dr. Mayor Ravi, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm not sure, I'm not sure this one's going to end strategically the way our government thinks it is. No.
just a disaster waiting to happen. And a disaster unfolding as we speak. For no reason, except spite. My take anyway. We'll have more rising right after this. This morning was the funeral of slain Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. And as you can see here, images from, the, uh, from that funeral, Israeli police, Israeli forces started attacking the mourners and to the point where the casket was actually dropped. I can't imagine a scenario in which somebody who's holding a casket is enough of a threat to police that they need to be struck because quite obviously they're using their hands to hold up the casket. It just feels like uh, an extra indignity to throw on top of what we've seen over the past couple of days. So, of course, as you've probably heard by now, uh, she, she was killed in, uh, amid, amidst a raid in Jenin. There's This is video of that. This, her, uh, her colleagues at Al Jazeera uh, say that this gunfire that you hear is from Israeli forces. And you, and you hear the other journalists yelling at the Israeli forces to stop firing, though the, the, firing, the firing continues as she, as she lays there. Israeli, the Israeli government has suggested that perhaps it was uh, Palestinians who fired the shot. They first, they first put out video of a uh, Palestinian gunman firing down an alley, but an Israeli human rights group very quickly was able to geolocate that video and show that, in fact, that was nowhere near uh, where she was killed. My colleague Rob Mackey at The Intercept has done some forensic work on this, and I'm curious for your take on this. So he... So there's also video, body cam footage of is, Israeli soldiers, and, it, and you actually can match up the two. So you see the Palestinians firing at the Israelis, the Israelis firing back uh, down this alley. And then you see Israeli forces emerge on the street at the end of which Akleh was killed. So, so in fact, it's, it seems like the video uh, that the Israeli government was highlighting may actually be more evidence that it, w- that it was Israeli gunmen who were in the vicinity there and would have had the ability uh, to, would have had, had the opportunity to kill her there. And so does that also contradict the initial Palestinian story that there weren't Palestinian soldiers shooting in the vicinity? It would if, if, those, if those claims were made, because right. there clearly were right. uh, armed Palestinians who were firing off rounds. This is like, what's... W- within a couple miles of this, of the killing. Yeah. And, and what's frustrating, and not even, frustrating is, is not a word that does justice to the situation. What's particularly tragic is the loss of a, a journalist, because in this and One of the context, most respected, well-known Palestinian journalists, right. period. In, in the homes of Palestinians for years, um, and this is unfortunately blown up into a, a, a incredible international incident because Al Jazeera obviously is tied to Qatar and it brings in all of these different parties that have invested in the situation. And what's so, I think, what is particularly tragic in, in this case is that as we are attempting 
to parse the details and figure out what happened, it shows exactly why she needed to be where she was, mm -hmm. right? Because we need documentation of these, these conflicts and skirmishes as they pop up, because we need the footage, we need the evidence, we need the truth, um, because it's so difficult to get to the truth. And in the loss of a, a journalist in the exact situation that she was in, um, I, I think it just, it proves how valuable um, it's how incredibly valuable it is to have footage and evidence of what's happening. Right. Um, it's just, it's so raw. And, and not that this, you know, adds, or adds to her humanity or her dignity or anything like that, but she also has an American passport. Mm -hmm. So she, so she's an American as right. well, which, which does, right, right. which does heighten, I think, so the concern that some people have. I don't think it necessarily should because, you know, we're all people on this planet. But it heightens but the international stakes it does. and it does. the different parties involved. And so the, the latest controversy is that the Palestinian Authority is saying that they're going to carry out uh, their investigation. Uh, is, Israelis have asked for the ability to analyze the bullet right. that killed Akhle. Uh, the Palestinian Authority has said no. Uh, now, the, the bullet is said to have been something that would uh, it's, what is it's, what exactly is it? It's the 5.56 um, millimeter bullet that goes in M16s, and both right. sides were apparently, sides according to reports, yeah. and again, this is why we need journalists in that situation, right. because according to reports, both sides were using M16s. So while the bullet could be matched to a specific gun, you wouldn't know just from saying, oh, this is a 5.56 millimeter, it came from the Palestinian side or the Israeli right. side. You would need to match it to the particular weapon. And so the bullet is an interesting and again, very tragic symbol because it's going to, it, 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 I, neither side trusts the other for it not to become propaganda. Um, right. And I think with good reason. Right, right. so the Israelis have said, uh, if, if you don't have anything, uh, you know, share it if you don't have anything to hide. Palestinians have said, we will- We don't trust we, you. We don't trust you and we're gonna yeah. conduct a, our own thorough investigation and, and that all the evidence so far suggests that uh, there were no Palestinians in that discrete area and that therefore- uh, With weapons. With, right, obviously Fine. there were Palestinians there. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so, but the, the attack on the funeral, uh, you, you, see this, you see this so often that, uh, that funerals become, sort, become sites of protest, uh, tensions are flaring, and then but to, but to attack uh, uh, the mourners, they also raided her home within hours of, of her killing. Mm. These are not the actions of, of a government that's trying to de-escalate a situation. It's, it's again, I, I, it's a symbol, and the funeral is a, a horrible symbol because it, even in mourning, uh, you, you can't even sort of properly grieve or um, you go through that process in such a charged situation without it becoming um, politicized and it, and beating yeah, and beating the pallbearers until they drop the casket. There's the, the dropping of the casket it's, is it's she's it, it just feels like so cruel mm, in the, it does. In, yeah, it, it, it does. It does feel so cruel. But it, again, um, when we're analyzing snippets of video uh, from you know the other side of the world, that's why 
that she was killed in the particular situation she was killed in, I think underscores how hard it is and how necessary it is mm -hmm. to have uh, that documentary evidence, live footage, audio, and all of that, because this has become such a propagandized conflict. You know, there's, it's so hard to get correct and accurate information that people who are there with cameras wearing those press vests and, and helmets, she was wearing a helmet, mm -hmm. uh, best, doing yeah. the extremely dangerous work that they do. Um, that's what helps us adjudicate these questions, um, which are which are difficult. I mean, these are very hard questions to adjudicate every single time something like this happens, um, whether it's the funeral, the shooting itself, and uh, that she was killed in the situation she was killed in, I just com think completely underscores that. Yeah. And we'll, conti we'll continue to follow this story uh, as, it, as it unfolds, for sure. Absolutely. We'll have more rising right after this. Stick around. The United Nations and the World Food Program are reporting that nearly 20 million people in Afghanistan are facing a serious crisis of hunger. It's a crisis primarily driven by the United States. To help unpack and explain this, we're fortunate to be joined now by Professor Shah Mehrabi. He's a, he's a professor of economics at Montgomery College and chair of the Central Bank of Afghanistan's Audit Committee and also a member of the board of the Central Bank of Afghanistan. Professor Mirabi, thank you so much for joining us. I'm pleased to join you this morning. And so there's been, there's been a lot of discussion in the media about this $7 billion in Afghan central bank reserves that the United States seized when the Taliban uh, took over Kabul. But there hasn't been much by way of explanation of why the United States was able to seize that money or who they seized it from. And so you are one of the few members of the Afghanistan uh, Central Bank, uh, which had the money seized from it. So can, can you just explain to viewers what is the Afghanistan Central Bank? How did it, how did it get, and how did it get created? Okay. Uh, thank you very much again for uh, inviting me. The Afghanistan uh, Bank, which is the Central Bank of Afghanistan, was established as an independent institution uh, and, and that independent institution have the full autonomy uh, to carry out its goal and responsibilities without interference uh, and pressure from others. And this was in 2004, the DAB law, that is Afghanistan Bank, DAB law was established. And that DAB law, which still is in existence, uh, clearly spells out that the primary objective of the, of the central bank is to be able to track and manage money supply. And the whole purpose is to bring about stability in the prices, to make it easier for people to afford to buy basic necessities of life. And the basic objective of uh, that law also is to provide enough liquidity. Uh, now, people have very difficult time to get access to their deposits on the bank because the reserves have been uh, uh, seized or stolen by others who says that, uh, or confiscated, or whatever word you want to use, uh, as, uh, by the United States. And that has crippled the financial institution uh, who are not able to be able to carry out their responsibility. And one of the main responsibilities is to bring st stability in the prices and also to, uh, to be able to eliminate vo volatility in exchange rate. And it's very critical here. I think it's, and, and a lot of people need to understand the fact that 
the objective uh, in this case of the of the central bank is to bring price stability and and to be able to do that uh, then uh, the central bank needs to engage in foreign exchange auctions and how do you do the foreign exchange auction when you don't have access to their own reserve uh, and and that you, that is United States uh, dollars the, uh, in the form of foreign exchange reserve that are at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that were uh, that were uh, deposited by the central bank because the United States offered uh, safety and also high rate of return. Now, those exchange rate has got high effect on inflation rate in Afghanistan uh, in case, which is, is now that in case the domestic currency loses its value against United States dollars, then what happens to the prices? Prices of import goods rise. And that is what you see clearly going on now in the economy. We have double-digit inflation, as well as we have double-digit uh, uh, increase in exchange rate, as I had uh, clearly predicted back in September of 2021. We have the clear data now that shows that uh, in both of those areas, and I'll be happy to share that as well. So the counter-argument is obviously devastating for the people of Afghanistan. The, the obvious counter-argument um, that people in the states say is if you release the funds, it goes into the hands of the Taliban and funds nefarious activities um, on the part of the Taliban. What's your response to that very common argument um, that gets thrown around in, in this debate? Why is, um, you know, why is that wrong, basically? Okay, this, this is the first point that needs to be brought up I think, uh, uh, and the public needs to know that these reserves are uh, reserves that belong to Afghan people. And Afghan people uh, established an independent entity, it's called Central Bank, uh, and they entrusted this institution based on the law, that law, that was the Central Bank law, vested the management and maintenance of these reserves uh, on this uh, Central Bank of Afghanistan. Uh, and for the purpose of safeguarding the value of the international value of Afghani vis-a-vis -vis that of dollar in Europe, and also to be able to maintain confidence in Afghanistan money in, in exchange rate policy. Now, President uh, President uh, Biden obviously split those in two, and then I will come to that later on. But now the important point here that I brought up a minute ago is that you one has to understand that the central bank is independent entity, and, and it still follow the laws and the laws that were established during the prior regime. regime, And the, also the highest policy-making body of the central bank is the Supreme Council. That is the board, what it's called, because it's, the central bank is very similar in its structure to that of Federal Reserve Bank of, of the United States. It has governors, and the governors make the policies. There has not been any interference by Taliban whatsoever in that fear that I conduct as a chair of the audit committee and or in the policy making of that uh, of that particular entity. So to argue that indeed the Taliban, if they, all you have to do is look at the evidence. What has happened to the reserve that we that we left in the hands of Taliban when uh, when Taliban took over uh, on, on August 15, those reserves were managed very well. And also there have been more reserve that have been accumulated in the past nine months. They have been used for the purpose of auctioning off on a limited basis in order to bring price stability and, and eliminate volatility in exchange rate. So look at the evidence. Right. And also what I had suggested to build a trust building mechanism 
I had suggested back in September, allow a monitored access to, uh, to uh, unlimited basis of $150 million for, to be used exclusively for auctioning purposes. Right, that's, and if you yeah. see the, uh, there's any misuse of that, then cut the funds. You right, know, that, that's, uh, what I, that, that's what I wanted to ask. That's what I wanted to ask you about because, okay, so you could say the, the, the central bank currently has assets. The Taliban has not interfered with the way that the central bank is dispersing the assets in, to, to meet its mandate of, of price control. But let's say that, you know, politicians in the United States are worried, well, what if we release a lot of this money and the Taliban changes its tune and starts <clears throat> interfering? What, what mechanisms do you have as a central banker uh, to be able to, you know, report back and to monitor? Uh, so, and then what could the United States do if it felt like its money was uh, being misused by the Taliban? Okay. The first, I, I want to make sure that we understand that this money is not United States money. Yes. I, 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 I mean, I, I, I agree with you on that, but the United the people here in the United States feel like it is their money, like, okay. even though it's not. Afghans, I have accumulated all this money yeah. uh, over the past 20 years, and they have deposited, the only thing is they deposited in the United right. States, and some of it in Europe, obviously, 2.1 a billion is in Europe, and that will have to be also released. Uh, and they are not releasing it because of the fear of treasury in the United States. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is the best way of to give guarantee, what I have suggested is that limited monitor release of these reserves. Why not come up with a trust-building mechanism between the current government and the United States? I had suggested $150 million per month. It could be less uh, to pay for imports. And now, a specific use of, the resource, of these reserves could be used for what I have said for auction purposes. Uh, in order to prop up the value of Afghani, the reason here is to stabilize prices, to help meet the needs of ordinary Afghans who cannot afford to buy bread, who cannot afford to buy, uh, pay for cooking oil, who cannot afford to go ahead and pay for fuel. So the whole idea is also that this can be independently verified. Uh, verified by uh, by uh, by auditing firm and can be terminated in the event of misuse. And I think this is a guarantee because again, why I reiterate this point that these reserves belong to Afghan people. It is managed, controlled, and invested by the Central Bank of Afghanistan. Uh, in you know, and the objective is to provide liquidity so that that they they can be readily available to pay for imports and to reduce volatility and so on and to reduce the depreciation of Afghani, which which creates higher prices that makes it very difficult for poor people who are very desperate uh, to be able to get a piece of bread and their long lines are formed at a bakery store, people begging to be able to have non, non which is a basic staple, to be able to have at least a piece of that particular bread to be able to survive. So it's in one way or another a cruel punishment uh, in, uh, by others to be able to seize the funds that belong to the ordinary Afghans and to be managed as Afghans have decided through the central bank, uh, which is an independent entity. Yeah, and, and we've, we've covered this pretty heavily on, on this program, but I, my sense is that the American people, and, in, and it seems like also perhaps the American government has basically no understanding, or they pretend that they have no understanding of what's going on here. So I just want to underline it one, one, one more time here. 
It is as if a foreign government seized all of the assets of the U.S. Federal Reserve. The U.S. Federal Reserve in the United States here is responsible for price stability. The Federal Fed right now is concerned about inflation, and so they're using uh, their reserves and they're using their interest rate policy in order to try to tamp down inflation. If the Federal Reserve can no longer operate, then it then you just get kind of just a runaway crisis the way that you get in Afghanistan. And one reason it feels like the American government doesn't understand what's going on here or pretends not to understand is that it, it, the Biden administration is saying that it's going to take half of this money. It's going to steal half of it. The other half, it's going to use, quote, to the benefit of the Afghan people. Now, that has been interpreted a couple of different ways. Some people thought that that, was going, that meant they would, it would be humanitarian aid. It would be funneled to, say, the World Food Program or the UN and would be used to kind of purchase food for people who are hungry and then give it, and, and then give it to those people. Uh, that is the opposite of what the, that, that, is, that is not what the central bank's role is. The central bank's role is to get the economy going, to get banks open, uh, to, to create a situation where people can actually you know, get paid for going to work and where people can depend on uh, you know, consistent prices you know, over time. And so what is, you, you, you meet with Treasury uh, occasionally. What is, what is your understanding of whether or not the White House understands this situation and is just acting in a reckless way or simply doesn't understanding it? Uh, and what is, what, is take, what is your understanding of what is taking so long to get this money released? I think there, there, uh, there's a political reason uh, for why there's been no, that these reserves have not been uh, released expeditiously. And it's not only the USD, United States dollars, that, uh, that, uh, that exist in the form of reserve, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank, but also Afghani banknotes. Afghani banknotes also have not been released because uh, of, uh, that, again, the United States initially did not uh, give a comfort letter to a Poland uh, printing company uh, to release Afghani banknote that still have not been released. While Treasury has facilitated that, uh, that is a comfort letter, uh, then there's been logistic problem. One, and then also, since there's no corresponding bank, here, uh, the, the Central Bank of Afghanistan cannot go ahead and transfer money to any other entity outside Afghanistan to be able to meet uh, its debt or other obligation. So, the Treasury definitely understand that this is a political decision that was made by President uh, by President uh, Biden, uh, and President Biden obviously decided that he is going to split uh, the funds into two, 3.5 billion to be used for what is called "quote unquote" for the benefits of Afghan people, uh, and then the other 3.5 uh, to be set aside for September 11 plaintiff uh, to be litigated in the court. Now, uh, this policy. Really, I've argued it's it's designed to decapitalize the central bank uh, and to dismantle it. It's it's, it's very simple uh, overall, uh, and I think I have argued also the whole policy of uh, allowing a plaintiff of uh, September 11. I strongly believe they can be compensated, but they could be compensated through other means rather than spending Afghanistan reserve. I think we spent. Now, in the last two months, $53 billion for uh, Ukraine purposes, there are ways that we could also facilitate this uh, or come up with an expenditure for the purpose of settling the 9-11 plaintiff. 
But I think to take away the 3.5 billion out of our 7 billion I, I, uh, allocation is, uh, as I would say, is totally unjustified. And there's no economic reasoning for how that split came into, a, into being, except the fact that it was a politically comfortable decision for President, uh, President Biden and the Treasury to go ahead and, uh, and, and come up with this particular arrangement. Great. Well, Dr. Mayor Ravi, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm not sure, I'm not sure this one's going to end strategically the way our government thinks it is. No, just a disaster waiting to happen. And a disaster unfolding as we speak for no reason except spite. My take anyway. We'll have more rising right after this. Right, John Lubecki is joining us now. And John and I started talking, uh, I can't remember, a while ago now, after my radar that I did about the, the use of uh, psychedelics and entheogens in treating uh, the post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and, and, and generally a pretty favorable radar about uh, psychedelics. John reached out and said, hey, you know, I, I was a, a, a participant in a study in which uh, these psychedelics were, uh, were, were used, and I have since become a, lobby, a federal lobbyist on behalf of, of their use. And so we've been trying to get him on the show for a, for a while now, but in the intervening period, he went over to Ukraine, to Poland, to Romania, to Moldova, doing all sorts of uh, relief and refugee work. And so first, are you back in the United States I am. I'm back in my apartment, um, at least for a couple of weeks. And then the plan is to actually go back for a few months. And so we, we want to talk about the psychedelics, and we're going to do that a little bit later. But first, I wanted to hear about your, your ex- experience over there. So ha- did you have any uh, experience in this field, or did you just see this crisis going on and just hopped on a plane and went over? How did, how did this, how'd you find yourself in Ukraine? So... I'm a veteran, uh, served four years in the Marine Corps, eight years in the Army. I deployed to Iraq. I saw, I I have firsthand knowledge of what a war-torn country looks like and the incredible need for humanitarian assistance. Was sitting, you know, in my apartment after the war started, trying to figure out how I could best help. Um, A lot of people in my life were very afraid I was actually going to go join the Ukrainian Army. and I got a Was call. that a possibility or were you no, no, no chance? So I, I'm Polish. And part of the reason I went to Poland is my father passed a year ago last year and he always wanted to go back to Poland and never actually made it. So I made a promise within a year I was going to go. And I had an opportunity, got a call in the middle of the night uh, from a friend of mine saying, hey, do you want to go to Romania and Moldova and help refugees? And I said, are we leaving in the morning or do I have some time to pack? Um, about a week later, got on a Turkish air flight, flew, flew to Romania, um, helped, dropped off medical supplies as well as food supplies and hygiene supplies there. Um, and then me and a partner, uh, Chris Furnish, who did a fantastic job. We went to the Moldovan border, went to Chisnau and went and worked in refugee centers there. I saw the enormity of the work. So I said, we need to do more trips. Um, and said, can we do one to Poland? They said, sure. I also had, uh, there's another person that, that works at MAPS, uh, Liana Galuli, who was in Poland, who messaged me while I was in Moldova, asking if I could come help coordinate some volunteers. Uh, and I said, sure, let me go home, 
you know, take care of my dog and then I'll be back. Showed up. Got to let um, the dog out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And uh, part of the reason I came back this time was that she's moving down with uh, my stepson and my ex to uh, South Carolina to be able to take care of her for a couple of months. Um, but got there. And when I was in the Marines, I was a loadmaster. And between the Marines and the Army, I did logistics, warehousing, that type of thing. And I walked into the warehouse and realized the situation I was in and just got to work uh, completely reorganizing, setting up the warehouse for efficiency. So shipments could go in and out, coordinating the, the food distribution routes, uh, and, and movements to warehouses within Ukraine. When I go back, we'll be looking at opening a warehouse in Moldova, as well as beefing up, uh, the warehouses that we have within Ukraine to be able to better and easy and more easily move food and medical supplies to outlying areas and shortening those supply chains because I know diesel gas is expensive here back home, but there's miles long lines for diesel and it's rationed to 10 liters per person. So when you don't have diesel fuel in that country, you've got to shorten the supply chains and use less diesel. So I know Ryan has a lot of questions on the the psychedelic front, and I want to transition into that part of our conversation. I think this is actually a really good segue because it it follows the pattern of your career, um, having seen devastation and humanitarian crises and then going and and helping. But so many veterans seem to be at the forefront of the movement to start getting um, legalization for psychedelics being used for medicinal purposes. It it really seems like it it has heavy veteran involvement. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, how you got involved um, and why you think it is particularly that, that veterans are um, so, so involved um, beyond just yourself, but so involved in this movement to um, start changing our norms around how psychedelics are used for medical purposes. So I, how I got involved was I came back from Iraq uh, in October, end of October 2006. Within 60 days, I put a loaded nine millimeter to my temple and I pulled the trigger. A a squib load, a manufacturing defect in the ammunition is the reason I'm alive. I have five attempts um, like that. I've slipped my wrists, I've tried to overdose. Um, After my final suicide attempt in November of 2013, the VA finally got me actual weekly counseling every week. And one week my, my doc, had an issue on the inpatient floor and said, I can't meet with you. Can you meet with my intern? That intern slid a piece of paper across the desk and said, I think this will help you stick it in your pocket. Don't open it till you leave. Hmm. Opened it up and it said, Google MDMA PTSD. And I discovered there was a clinical trial in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, right across the bridge, called, applied and was accepted. I legitimately didn't think it would work, but was willing to try anything at that point after multiple suicide attempts, hospitalizations, and that doesn't even count the hundreds of times I stood on a bridge and, and just walked away. Mm-hmm. I had run out of options um, and I went through it. And that was seven years ago. Interestingly enough, my refred date from the army in Iraq was November 22nd, 2006. I took my first dose of MDMA in my entire life, November 22nd, 2014. And so this November 22nd, I will have been healed of PTSD as long as I had it. Mm. But To the second part of your question, why veterans? One, we're one of the few groups that everyone will listen to, and if they don't, they typically get in trouble for it. Mm 
but also our trauma is socially acceptable. Um, nobody, you know, men, women who are raped, victims of domestic violence, all the other ways you can be traumatized, don't want to go, you know, on Hill Rising and talk about their trauma. Whereas veterans have a unique ability that our trauma is viewed as socially acceptable. Um, and the veterans who have done it know that this works. And they, you know, we all have friends who haven't done this, who haven't been able to have access to this, that, you know, we get a call at two o'clock in the morning and we spend three hours talking them out of killing themselves. Hmm. And we know there's a solution and military have a hard time leaving their brothers and sisters behind. And I'm glad you made made that point because it it's it's good that you know so, you know some veterans are starting to get access to this type of therapy. But as you said, there there is trauma all throughout society, and I think most people can benefit from MDMA mm -hmm. uh, from some type of uh, you know therapeutic approach there, or even not therapeutic. Uh, so, but I'm I'm curious what what are the what are the obstacles now that you come up against? And where, where are we making the most progress? You know, I you know Washington, D.C., I think Washington State, uh, where else? Colorado, there have been, a, there's, there have been advances in a, in a number of places where entheogens, as they call them, are, are starting to be uh, taken seriously. Voters are approving different, different uh, initiatives. You know, where, where is the progress being made? And if people are watching this and thinking, like, I, this sounds like something I or somebody in my life needs, how, how do they legally go about bringing that into their life? Hmm. So the, 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 to apply for the MDMA clinical trials, you can go to uh, www.mdmaptsd.org. One of the biggest disqualifiers is you have to live within an hour and a half of one of a, the test and trial sites. Um, one, of, one of the obstacles is time. It takes time and a lot of it to conduct clinical trials to FDA standards, so they will accept the results and then eventually approve a drug. Um, you know, MAPS, which started this, was founded in 1985. They, I did the phase two trial seven years ago. They just enrolled the final person in the second half of phase three. And depending on the results, um, if the results are anywhere near where phase two and the first half of phase three were, we should see FDA approval late next year. You're seeing a, a lot of the roadblocks with the phase three trial starting and the results from that have somewhat lifted. Funding is always an issue. Um, MAPS is actually a nonprofit pharmaceutical company. They don't have any IPO. Everything has been done based on donations. Um, government funding would be a fantastic thing. And that's one of the things I try to do is get government funding for all these trials so that we have all the options on the table. Um, yeah, and what, what is, speaking of funding, what is the posture of, of Big Pharma toward this? Because, you know, with, with a lot of solution, quote unquote, solutions that Big Pharma uh, offers for these types of crises, they are ongoing. Like mm -hmm. you're taking pills every day for the rest of your life, and that's just, and, and which is coincidentally quite lucrative for the pharmaceutical company. With this, that's not, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, you know, it, it may, it's going to take a number of sessions, but it doesn't mean that every single day you're spending money on another pill that they have been able to, to patent. So is that some of the obstacle that you're facing, that, that it, there's less profit in this? And lobbying um, against it. And, right. 
Right. And, I, are, I, and are, is, is Big Pharma concerned? Are they actively lobbying against it or are they just not helping move it forward? They're ambivalent to it. I think part of it is for a long time they were like, there's no way this is going to work. There's no mm -hmm. way this will be approved. We don't have to waste our time and resources. But also, as you said, Ryan, there's tens of millions of people who are traumatized in this country. And, you know, this is a, a four month protocol. It includes 84 hours in total of therapy time split between two separate therapists. And so you can only do so many people at a time that I think they basically view it as there'll be enough traumatized people for everybody. Mm. Um, that's not where I see resistance. Where I see resistance and active lobbying against psychedelics is usually from either law enforcement or the addiction recovery industry. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, John, I was going to say, if people haven't been following this very closely, they may think of it sort of in the, the way that medical marijuana was a joke for a long time and obviously abused through loopholes um, for recreational purposes. But this is not that at all. I mean, this is a very sort of scientific and medical treatment. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit about, for, for people who aren't familiar uh, with it, what the therapy looks like and what your experience was um, on that journey to recovery as you were undergoing. The, the therapy, I think that would be really helpful. Absolutely. And so the FDA doesn't get mad at me. I do have to say this is in clinical trials. There are risks and it does not work for everyone. Right. Um, but it, so, so it's split up into non-drug sessions and drug sessions. So you have three 90-minute non-drug sessions, very similar to if you've ever gone and sat down with a therapist. Um, and then you do an eight-hour long therapy session under the influence. And then you do three integration, 90 minute integration sessions to talk about, you know, cause you continue to heal and continue to process even after you, you aren't under the influence. Um, and then you do another active session, three, an active session and then three. So that's, that's the phase three protocol. Um, so my, as you're ingesting the MDMA, it's being supervised basically by a professional. Oh yes, it's being supervised by not one, but two therapists who have to go through a specialized training protocol um, as required by the REMS by FDA uh, to be able to do this. Now, one of the more interesting things in the training is the therapist has the opportunity to actually undergo both a placebo and an active uh, session. So they'll do an active session and three integration sessions. So they personally understand how it works because let's be honest, you can't really understand what it's like to, to experience psychedelics until you've actually experienced mm -hmm. psychedelics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, to, and, and so I, I say it's like doing therapy while being hugged by everyone in the world who loves you in a bathtub full of puppies licking your face. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, the, one originally, no, go ahead, sorry. Sorry, one thing to understand is Everybody looks at this as, hey, take a pill or take this, ingest this substance, and you're fixed. And that's not what this is. The, the medication, or if you're talking psilocybin or ibogaine, puts the mind, body, and spirit in the place it needs to be so the therapy can work. It breaks down those barriers to having that therapy actually work. 
you know, this wasn't a fun experience. Um, it wasn't traumatic, like say prolonged exposure therapy, which is like beating on a nerve till it doesn't feel. But I went through all the worst things I ever experienced in my life. I intended on walking in and talking about Iraq and I talked about uh, abuse I suffered as a, as a child, you know, being bullied, uh, trauma from Iraq, the trauma of coming home and having uh, my wife move out two weeks before I got home and didn't even know it till I got home. Um, so it really does clear all the trauma out. And me personally, it taught me therapy can actually work. If you, if you put in the work, you put in the effort. And, and so when I've had traumatic events happen in my life since I went through it, um, as an example, I had a gentleman drown in a lake behind my house. I went in, pulled him out, did CPR, and he died in my arms. There was a gunshot victim in Charleston, similar situation. Hmm. You know, my son got very sick on a cruise ship, was life flighted by the Coast Guard. After those, yeah, I, I went and I talked to a therapist for a couple of months and I processed it and and, and I, I'm fine. I'm, as a matter of fact, one of the first things I did when I got back from, from Ukraine was pick up the phone and have a conversation with a therapist to talk about some of the stuff that I experienced hmm. because I value my mental health. But I also know that if I ever get PTSD again from some new trauma, this is available. Hmm. And the the street name for MDMA, as as everybody knows, is is ecstasy. But in the in the very early days of it, there was debate among people who were discovering it that it actually should be called empathy. Now that doesn't catch on because it's not who wants to take empathy in a club or whatever. You, know, you can imagine why ecstasy won out in the, in the marketing over empathy. But to me, empathy, and I'm curious for your take on this, has always made a lot more sense because on, under MDMA, you just get this overpowering sense of empathy for the for other people and and I would suspect that that could help you work through those traumas because if you if you feel like if if there's some type of anger that you have at somebody say for leaving two weeks before you get home under the influence of of empathy uh, you can start to see the world from other people's perspectives in a way that just simply isn't necessarily possible for most people out outside of that. And I can imagine that that could help you process the, those traumas. Is that, is, is, that, is that getting close to what you experienced? Although I know it's hard to put it in, in words. That's, that's part of it. Um, now, one of the other things that MDMA does through empathy is it builds trust with everyone around you. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, one of the issues when I was growing up was I had a therapist break ethics and divulge my abuse to my abuser rather than reporting it. Mm. So I had that coupled with 12 years in the military and being terrified of, of, of mental health because that would end your career. You know, I had a very healthy distrust of therapists that did not occur when I was under the influence and I could talk to the therapists. Um, it also mutes the amygdala, which is the fear response in your brain. So you don't get panic attacks. It, it keeps you, from overreacting in the moment while you're going through it. Um, so you can process it in a fairly normal fashion, but, but you are correct. It allows you to see different perspectives and have empathy for other people, but also empathy for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of it was, I thought the bad things that happened in my life was because I was a bad person and you know, that I deserved, somehow deserved what had happened to me. 
and it allowed me to have empathy for myself. Mm. Well, John, uh, thanks so much for joining us and uh, well, welcome back anytime to update us on your travels over there or on your ongoing journey. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. I think, I think we could talk to John all day, Ryan. I think we could. And, and Ryan's too modest, but he actually wrote a book about this. It's called This Is Your Country on Drugs, so you can check that out. Very old book, but yes, it yes. Goes, into, goes into a lot of this. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be back with more Rising after this. There's a baby formula shortage that has finally captured the attention of the media, although I would say, Ryan, by the time it did catch the attention of the media, it was much too late. There's a lot to talk about here. We can talk about sort of the, the bottlenecks that exist just in our supply chains and in our, our regulatory spheres. But I want to start off by asking, do you think the fact that this baby formula exists and is part of this ongoing supply chain crisis um, that stems from so many global global issues that have sprung up over the past couple of years, whether it's the, the pandemic, uh, what's happening in Eastern Europe, um, inflation. I mean, there's just so much going on here. But do you think the, the lack of attention on this reflected a media blind spot um, for the, the last, I don't know, couple of months? I mean, Ukraine has blotted out a lot of coverage, but reasonably so. Should, right. Yeah. But it shouldn't have it shouldn't have ta it shouldn't have taken it to get to this level for it to to be noticed. And, you know, the, 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 the FDA, the White House uh, and the industry itself, uh, you know, are all are all collectively to blame here. But it, it also exposes just this kind of inability that that the United States is developing to just produce things. Mm -hmm. um, and so and we, but we can we can go go back. So it starts with what basically starts with Abbott. Right, which which makes uh, uh, which makes one of the most popular um, uh, baby formulas, which is the one we use with simulacrum or whatever it's called. <laughs> it's a word that is just just I never was able to get in my head. It was like that's the one that's sim. That's the one we're going to get. Yes. Uh, they, there was a whistleblower that Abbott says is uh, was somebody they fired and is and is full of BS. Uh, but at the same time, the whistleblower said that there were these unsafe conditions going on in this Michigan plant. Uh, there were then four babies who got sick who'd been using the formula. Two of them died. Mm. FDA says that there's enough reason to think that it may have come from here. Abbott says it didn't come from there. So then, then basically, just like everything gets recalled and shut down. Right. And at, safety is obviously important. You, you do not want uh, these bacteria-riddled formula going into a newborn. Right. They could die. Right. Two did die. We don't know if it was because of that, but it's possible. Right. But it also seems like all of these decisions were not made with the urgency that is required for infants. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's on both ends. It seems to be on both ends. And I think it's a lack of appreciation for how fragile our supply chains mm -hmm. are. And this example is so instructive because we, we learned how fragile our supply chains were in regards to like PPE and stuff really early in the pandemic. But when inflation hit and they were shipping bottlenecks just over the course of the last year, there are all of these random products people are suddenly realizing are, are, are inaccessible or their prices are really high because of oligopolies or because of... Uh, supply chain bottlenecks, whatever it is, um, suddenly we realize when things get, uh, it's, it's a, uh, what's a, what's a good word for it? It's almost like an ecosystem or it is like mm -hmm. an ecosystem where you have a ripple effect. So when one thing goes wrong over here, 
it's going to create a problem that you are not even anticipating down the road. Right. And it might happen immediately, it might happen in six months, but it's gonna happen. And we've developed these global supply chains that have benefited um, major multinational corporations really well. Um, and our government has been in bed with those corporations through cronious systems of regulation, whether it's at the FDA or anywhere else. And this just is a wake, I mean, it's such a, a complete wake-up call as to how mismanaged that system is. We take for granted um, under normal circumstances how easy it is to get things like baby formula, and then we realize this is a life-or-death situation, and it's dependent on our government and the multinational corporate system. And, and we've also set up a system where we have made it more profitable uh, for the executives of these companies to basically skim the money than to, than to reinvest it back into their business through, through these stock buybacks. And so Abbott, uh, Abbott did some gigantic, you know, massive uh, stock buyback with their profits, which boosts the share price of the stocks. The executives are mostly paid in stock options. And what, so, what are you going to do as a consumer? You say, oh, I'm not buying anything from Abbott anymore because of the stock buybacks. Right. They're like, it's free. Like, yeah. it, it, it's a decision that these executives can make that is basically free to them, and it's free money that comes in them, the stock rises, and then they walk away. With, with that money. The, the Randian market yeah. power ideal does not apply. That right, is not, not going apply. to check right. the executives from their buybacks at Abbott. Right, because self-interest says, okay, if I can do this and get a million dollars, and if I can do this and not get a million dollars, I'm going to do this. Yeah. They're, cu they're cushioned from, um, and this is, applies to many, many companies. It's not just them. And this is a huge problem with tech in particular. But they're cushioned from the blowback of, of market power um, because, I mean, for just a lot of reasons, consumers have been disempowered, um, again, through the relationship between big business and big government, which does disempower consumers in a way um, that even if you are sort of an anti-big government conservative libertarian should make you blanch. I mean, it is, it's completely antithetical to how the system is supposed to run even if you're a capitalist. Yeah. And it sh still shouldn't take weeks or months to get the plant back up and moving. Mm -hmm. like get in there, clean the thing, and get it moving. Right. Right. Like we, we don't have time for, ba these babies don't have time for you to take months mm -hmm. to, you know, to just sit around and figure out how to, how to get this done. Because now you're getting into a psychological situation where you're seeing this huge increase in demand. As, as one company cited an 18% increase in demand for formula. And that's not because there's 18% more babies <laughs> drinking 18% more formula. In fact, there's super been a, thirsty babies. It's been a slight glut. <laughs> uh, there's been a slight downturn in the number of births over the last couple of years. People expected a COVID baby boom. We didn't get it. We got the we got the opposite. But what what I suspect, and I bet research later will show, is that people are hoarding mm -hmm. because oh, absolutely. If yeah. if it if the question is whether or not your infant is going to be able to 100%. eat in a month. And you see, like, there's only two left. 100%. You're, most people are going to walk out with those two. 100%. Less, so then the next person comes and gets none. And so, it, and so it feeds it. So now you're in this psychological situation where you need actually a lot more supply than there actually is demand. Right. Um, and, and so they're saying it could take four to six weeks to get the supply back on. It's going to be a long uh, four to six weeks. It's nail-biting for parents who, by the way, I mean, there are some children you can make formula in particular ways, but there's some children who actually need particular formula um, mm -hmm. that comes through the supply chain. And so, yes, that's going to be extremely stressful and nail-biting for parents who are already dealing with um, inflation, 
with the, the stresses of the last two years in general, if you're a parent. Um, I mean, gosh, I can't imagine what the last two years have been like um, for parents, especially parents in uh, financially precarious situations. And the last thing I'll say, I think this is kind of an interesting opening for a conversation too. It's, uh, Kim tweeted last night, um, Democrats have let Republicans own this baby shortage, this, this baby formula shortage. Um, and we can probably put that up in, in post-production, but I'm paraphrasing her and it's like, that's how bad Democrats are. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's, there's no question about it. The Democratic Party, I think Katie Porter was talking about this this week too. Like the Democratic Party's Ill, blind spots um, are, are sort of, the, the blind spots Republicans used to have have almost shifted to Democrats because Republicans for political reasons um, are now sort of reaching out to working Americans and you know trying to at least get their ear into those conversations. Um, and it, I think it's having some effect at least on the fact that like Republicans were on top of this before Democrats were. And I think the last thing I'd say would be, uh, this should put some focus on milk banks I mean, that's not, not by no means like a solution to this immediate crisis. But so these, there, there are milk banks around the country where people, you know, where people can donate breast milk. Yeah. And they're just massively under-resourced, yet, the, yet there, there are so many babies in, in NICUs mm -hmm. and also beyond that would be so much, would be so much better off. Uh, if they're t if they're uh, drinking breast milk rather than uh, formula, mm -hmm. and there are I think many many people who would be donating, many more people that would be donating if if it were easier to do. Uh, right. My my family did we we did it more than ten years ago, and it was, it was very difficult, mm -hmm. like because of the way that they're so under resourced. Mm -hmm. And if we've got forty billion dollars that we can just print up uh, for Ukraine, it wouldn't take much. Uh, to just say, look, this this type of investment is going to return itself over, you know, a millionfold. It's it's amazing how much we take for granted the security of the supply chains when they're working correctly. We totally take for granted how dependent we are on what is actually a very very fragile ecosystem. And so that's another reason I think, um, particularly those those centers are underappreciated because if you're one of the people who has you know under normal circumstances no problem buying what you want in bulk, um, you know it's it's never an issue. You, know, you can go to Costco and you can buy right. incredible amounts at any time you want um, for a relatively low price. And in a situation like this, when that's gone, I mean, it, it does shed light on how fragile this is for people always um, in particular circumstances or how difficult it is for, for people in particular circumstances. But I think it has been an interesting illustration and, and lesson um, in, in how out of touch a lot of people who talk about politics and actually make our policy are um, on certain issues and it took people who have babies um, to in the media and in, in politics to really start talking about this hearing from moms um, or being mothers themselves um, and imagine uh, if, if that's an if it happened on this issue imagine what happens on other issues um, where they have really no skin in the game at all yeah no it's utterly terrifying I, and i'm just personally glad that we're beyond the formula phase this just, just sounds horrifying
It completely yeah. sounds horrifying. Although hopefully, it, it, there, I mean, it's one of the situations that could have a silver lining, like the PPE situation early in COVID did, that we reshore supply chains and secure them. But um, that hasn't totally happened yet. So we'll see if it does. Um, but yeah, I mean, if there is a silver lining to this, it's that it's a wake-up call. But that means it actually has to function right. as a wake-up call. Right, and maybe, maybe some consequences. Like, how about some negligence? How about some actual consequences for Everyone's people who do this? Well. Yeah, just how, how about that? It's all, it's all anyone's in, asking inve- for. Investigate uh, these companies. And, you know, all of a sudden, you change the balance then between uh, how, how, how valuable it is to you to skim that money off the top yes. versus reinvesting. So you gotta, you got to change that formula. Otherwise, people are just going to keep walking away with the money. I'm all for that. I'm all for that. Although Talk not optimistic it'll happen. No. Not at all. Not well, at Ryan, all. I'm glad that you are feeling better. Uh, yes. you, had, you had a rough few weeks. Feel good. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's great to be back in studio with you. Good, good to be here. Nothing to it. <laughs> He's wearing slippers under yes. the desk. No, it, it was I, I, my my COVID wasn't too bad. It was like a couple afternoons. I needed a nap, so I'm I'm, I'm grateful it wasn't a, a lot worse. Uh, it's because it's still it's still hitting a lot of people. It's still hitting some people really hard. Yeah, and and it you it's hard to predict how yeah, it hits you. But a weird, weird, weird virus. Almost like it came from a lab. Yeah, it really makes you wonder. <laughs> it seems sort of like it, somebody made it. <laughs> Well, on that note, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any Rising Fridays content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're also available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And by the way, we've gotten your feedback that we should read tweets because a lot of you listen to it. And if we just reference a tweet that's on the screen, you're not going to know what the tweet says. So thank you for that feedback. We, we will now okay. be sure to, to read those tweets or documents that we put up on the screen going forward. It is great to know, though, that uh, people are taking us with them on their commutes. We promise to do better. Yes, we do. We promise. Uh, or we will suffer consequences. Yes, we will. Unlike the, yeah. the Abbott executive. Investigate and prosecute. Yes. Got it. All right. See you next, see you next Friday. Have a good weekend, everyone. <laughs>